to the Justice and War in American History podcast. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Ray Haberski. War has long been an indelible part of America's story, shaping national identity, values, and principles. The experience of war has transformed the lives of each generation. And because of this, it has historically elicited impassioned debates and conflicting perspectives. This podcast aims to explore this history by bringing together a diverse range of voices, veterans, active service members, citizens, and scholars. Through our conversations, we will consider the ways in which war has shaped and reshaped notions of justice. In the process, we will engage with broad themes such as duty, heroism, suffering, loyalty, and patriotism. Our broad framework during this season is to compare and contrast the histories of the Spanish-American, Philippine-American, and Vietnam Wars, wars that had a profound effect on the people of the United States. The National Endowment for the Humanities has generously provided funding for this project, making it possible to have conversations about the effects of war on American veterans, their families, and the generations who bear witness to conflict. Welcome back to the Justice and War in American History podcast. Today's episode, we're talking about justice and the declaration of war. So in this episode, I had a chance to talk to a faculty member and a couple of students who are all vets about what it means when the country, the United States, declares war. Uh, how, does, how do vets in particular understand those declarations? And in, in sort of you know, historical context, why it's important for a country to feel that it is behind that declaration of war, especially when the vets are fighting and dying and potentially killing for their country. We have two guests, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Jordan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself first? Sure. My name is Jordan Hansen. I am currently a student here at IEPY studying so, uh, social studies education. Um, plan to be a teacher in the future. Not sure what capacity yet. I served in the Army for five years as a 31 Bravo military police officer, uh, various assignments, doing riot patrol, uh, search and rescue missions, then uh, transitioned over. I'm in the Indiana Air National Guard now as a security forces officer. Similar role, uh, just different title. Good. Brody? Uh, my name is Brody Hogan. I'm also a student in IPY, also doing secondary social studies mm -hmm. teaching. Um, I was in the Marine Corps for four and a half years doing network administration and technical liaison. Okay. It's a lot more fun than it sounds. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm... Both of you I've, I've uh, had as students in, uh, in undergraduate classes here at IUPUI, so it's nice to think that you'll be teaching other students in the future. That, that warms my heart. I'm happy that maybe I'll get some of your graduates or you might become my colleague in the, in the future if I'm still around. Um, but one of the things that we often do in classroom settings when we talk about war and the justice of war is to think about how a leader um, justifies a nation going to war. Uh, the typical term for that is a, a declaration of war. In U.S. Uh, constitutional policy, the idea is that a president needs to um, convince the Congress to formally declare war in order for the United States to enter it. Uh, of course, we, we know from experience that is not always the case. Um, but we do have, one. I think, one of the most fascinating examples of a kind of declaration of war and this was Lyndon Johnson's declaration or his press conference talking about going to war in Vietnam, sort of, in July of 1965. It was really a, a, a moment when Johnson uh, was talking about the escalation of troops in, in Vietnam. 
And what makes this important, of course, is that he is beginning what will become, up to that point, the longest war in American history, and a war that becomes sort of the touchstone for all wars from that point forward, right? When we think about um, how George H.W. Bush dealt with uh, the first Persian Gulf War, or George W. Bush dealt with the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, we always go back to what Johnson was trying to do in late 64 and then certainly in 1965, and whether or not the United States as a nation, as a people, uh, were really behind him and behind this, this war effort. Uh, there are plenty of opinion polls you can always look at, but you know, if there is a moment where Lyndon Johnson tries to lay out that the United States is about to enter a new kind of conflict in Vietnam is July 1965. My fellow Americans, not long ago I received a letter from a woman in the Midwest. She wrote, Dear Mr. President, in my humble way I am writing to you about the crisis in Vietnam. I have a son who is now in Vietnam. My husband served in World War II. Our country was at war. But now, this time, it's just something that I don't understand. Why? Well, I've tried to answer that question dozens of times and more in practically every state in this union. I've discussed it fully in Baltimore in April, in Washington in May, in San Francisco in June. And let me again now discuss it here in the East Room of the White House. Why must young Americans, born into a land exultant with hope and with golden promise, toil and suffer and sometimes die in such a remote and distant place? The answer, like the war itself, is not an easy one. But it echoes clearly from the painful lessons of half a century. Three times in my lifetime, in two world wars and in Korea, Americans have gone to far lands to fight for freedom. We have learned at a terrible and a brutal cost that retreat does not bring safety and weakness does not bring peace. And it is this lesson that has brought us to Vietnam. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Some citizens of South Vietnam, at times with understandable grievances, have joined in the attack on their own government. But we must not let this mask the central fact that this is really war. It is guided by North Vietnam and it is spurred by communist China. Its goal is to conquer the South, to defeat American power, and to extend the Asiatic dominion of communism. And there are great stakes in the balance. 
most of the non-communist nations of Asia cannot by themselves and alone resist the growing might and the grasping ambition of Asian communism. Our power, therefore, is a very vital shield. If we are driven from the field in Vietnam, then no nation can ever again have the same confidence in American promise or in American protection. In each land, the forces of independence would be considerably weakened. And an Asia so threatened by communist domination would certainly imperil the security of the United States itself. We did not choose to be the guardians at the gate, but there is no one else. Nor would surrender in Vietnam bring peace, because we learned from Hitler at Munich that success only feeds the appetite of aggression. The battle would be renewed in one country and then another country, bringing with it perhaps even larger and crueler conflict, as we have learned from the lessons of history. Moreover, we were in Vietnam to fulfill one of the most solemn pledges of the American nation. Three presidents, President Eisenhower, President Kennedy, and your present president, over 11 years, have committed themselves and have promised to help defend this small and valiant nation. Strengthened by that promise, the people of South Vietnam have fought for many long years. Thousands of them have died. Thousands more have been crippled and scarred by war. And we just cannot now dishonor our word or abandon our commitment or leave those who believed us and who trusted us to the terror and repression and murder that would follow. This then, my fellow Americans, is why we're in Vietnam. Uh, this is just an extraordinary uh, clip from Johnson. And I actually, I like it so much because I think we we fail to remember in some ways how clear he made the argument for going into Vietnam. We can dissect it. We can disagree with it. We can even say the United States was unsuccessful, right, in, in achieving whatever it was that Johnson had set out. But it was pretty clear from what he said what the rationale was. So at the, at the risk of sounding like, you know, we're back in uh, one of our classes what do you make of what, what Johnson said? I'll start with you, Jordan. I think there's a lot to, to pick out of there um, that makes it difficult because, you know, going another document that we've looked at, mm -hmm. the path to war, like that's it, a fictitious example maybe um, of McNamara and uh, Clifford, I think. Yeah, Clark are, Clifford. Yep. Arguing uh, both sides. Mm -hmm. and, In 1965. Yep, and yep. We, we don't see that. We see the just kind of the justifications mm -hmm. for doing it, right. not, not necessarily what the arguments against would be. Um, and 
I think that's a good point, right? There's always something behind the scenes. There are more documents to look at. There's more history to sort of, there's a richness to to a narrative. Uh, There are conflicts, there are disagreements. But when Johnson makes this speech, right, to the American to the American public through a press conference, I mean, that's what the American public is going to hear. That's what's that's what he wants to leave them with. Yeah. So, I mean, what did you sort of again, your context in a sense, right? Both of you is that you joined the service, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I, I get, I would imagine, right, in part because you believed in the mission of the government and the service that was supporting the government. So Johnson is laying out what the mission is in Vietnam. What did you take away? What, what was the mission? What did he think that was? Well, and, and the protection of, of the lesser man, yeah. or the, not the lesser man, right. but the, the um, underdog, so to speak. Right, the smaller uh, country. Uh, yeah. the, and if we fail to do this, then in the eyes of the world, okay. America has failed to live up to its promise. Okay, I mean, great, the, right. The big that was certainly that, a big that, part of it. Yeah, I I grabbed from it at least, and yeah. I, f- I feel like that's a justification that has continued to be used over and over again. Right, right. Um, to to what end? I don't know. Uh, I I can't remember if it was one of the documents that we've read together or mm-hmm. s- something else. But it, it's to um, what is losing is is pulling out losing, or right. where winning is continuing the same thing over and over again, you know, where's the, right. Right. where's Without the line there? But. Right. That, no, it's a very good question that we've certainly have thought a lot about recently. Yeah. Right. Rody, what do you think? What do you take away from, from listening to Johnson lay out the rationale for war in Vietnam? Well, like uh, Jordan said, it was like how familiar that argument of like American protection yeah. is in conflict. Yeah. Like I think similarities can be, brought together from that and okay. much more recent arguments as to why our troops are where they are okay. and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also really, I think like you were saying, the simplicity of it makes it a lot more easy to digest yeah. by the average citizen. Yeah. Right. They don't have to imagine what warfare is. They just understand that there's this mission that needs to be done. Like, this great evil that is communism that must be stopped from spreading. Right. I mean, so <laughs> if, if the mission is about protecting South Vietnam and if the enemy is sort of this, uh, the specter of global communism, right? Um, what are the consequences that, that Johnson points to if the United States doesn't take up this mission? It's kind of twofold. The saying that the specter of communism is the enemy opens up the door for this isn't the only conflict that we're going to have with this. Right. But it also um, kind of points to this like like justification and breaking it down for for everyone to have an enemy enemy to rally behind. Mm-hmm. That you know we have the context of studying a little bit more, but for the average listener of this who might not, they just think these horrible things about communism has been the the enemy that the the world has rallied behind and it's easy to make that of that case of the other for people to get behind yeah i mean there are a lot of um sort of interesting hooks that johnson provides right he he talks about munich and the idea right that of course was sort of the, the code for appeasement and we know that appeasement of hitler led to the worst war in human history, right? So clearly this is the same situation. Whether or not, you know, you, you want to push back on that a little bit. Um, 
the domino theory is very heavy yep. in, in Johnson's, at least his statement here, right? That if you lose Vietnam, right, whatever is happening in Asia will go in the wrong direction. Other places will fall to a power that the United States is going to be opposing whether or not, you know, um, we ever wanted to Sorry. for the foreseeable future, right? Um, as, as people who have been in the service, does it matter that President Johnson laid out what he thought the mission was for the country in Vietnam? Because he starts, right, by addressing a letter he got from a young woman who's, I think, brother is in the service. And she's asking why. Why is he, what is he doing there? What, what's the point of him being there? So, again, he's speaking in a way, if you can imagine, generationally, to even folks like you, does it matter? Or how does it matter? Yeah, I think having the clear articulation of, of what, whether there's stuff behind the scenes we know of that matters. But yep. um, it, it does have that clear direction of this is why. Okay. And I think, especially when you are serving, when you're in the heat of whatever you're doing, that to you does matter. Okay. I know, like in my experience, um, when I was deployed, we, I'm, using air quotes, like we, we had that, but we, right. I didn't feel that. Okay. Like it, you didn't feel this, this solid mission that you could really justify what you're doing, where I think here, you know, it plays out differently, but we, we see this, we see this is why we're doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And like, as a, as a tr troop on the ground, like you can feel good about that. You can get behind. Okay. Message. Okay. I think also that it's this attempt to like deify the American soldier in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So like this is before you have like, you have like recruitment campaigns, but Johnson even says later in the, uh, later in the press conference about how he doesn't want to activate reserves. He wants right. to try to keep it um, volunteer force. Mm -hmm. I think that maybe he'd put some thought into trying to make sure it sounded like something that maybe a young American man who is trying to find like what he needs to find. He mm -hmm. wants to find it there. Or he wants to make them think that's where it is. Yeah. Well, especially coming out of the legacy of, you know, the yeah. World War II and, and the, the stuff that happened before. Right. It's like, all right, this is our time to step up. So as a young American hearing this, no doubt. You, I mean, you, you think this is my, my turn to fight, my turn to step up for my country. Right. And that has been a story that Americans have told themselves for generations, right? I mean, uh, after the Civil War, there was this really sort of incredible moment um, the generation that had, had had come of age in the shadow of the Civil War generation had the Spanish-American War as their moment of glory. And, of course, the Civil War generation, if maybe the younger generation had been listening, would have been hearing them scream, don't do it. I mean, war is not, it is not um, glory-filled, you know. It is bloody and it's awful, and if you have to fight it, you fight it. But to choose it or look for it is probably not the best way to go as a young person. But we also know in Vietnam that the, the part of the population that was most supportive of the Vietnam War for the longest time were 18 to 30-year-olds, which I know sounds crazy. You can look it up, listeners. But um, it is because the older generations had experience with Korea and World War II and were very wary of war and what that meant and certainly didn't want it for the younger generation if they could avoid it, you know? 
where the younger generation in some ways, um, perhaps Johnson's speech or his press conference, and again, he, as he said, he, he had gone on a tour basically trying to convince Americans that what was happening in Vietnam was right for the country, that there was a pl- that they had a plan. Um, of course, we find out later through the Pentagon Papers that there was incredible conflict over whether or not whatever strategy you know, the government was going to use was actually going to work in Vietnam. It didn't matter. He had to, at that moment, convince popular opinion in some way that this was not a losing strategy, that there was, there was a reason uh, for Vietnam to exist in American foreign policy. All right, so we, you know, we have Johnson as a touchstone. I think he's one of the most important presidents when it comes to speaking about war. We also, <laughs> we also looked at William McKinley's very famous declaration of war for the Spanish-American War, and I laugh because it's, it's for those who, who know it, one of the things that McKinley um, told Congress was that he got down on his knees and prayed to God to give him guidance. So I'm curious uh, how, how both of you feel about the difference between how McKinley shapes his declaration of war or his, his justification for the Spanish-American War compared to Johnson. So, Brody, you want to you take this one up first? Um, yeah, I think early in the declaration he talks about how the American like common man is suffering because of the actions that are being taken in the area. Like he's talking about how commerce suffers and mm-hmm. how like those people are losing and every American in Cuba uh-huh. like is losing their liberty because of what's going on there. And it's he's trying to find the I guess those who need the protection, the little guy. Okay, again, so protecting a country that has been invaded or um, oppressed in some way, and the United States is there to liberate or protect, okay. Um, also is interesting is he doesn't try to make as significant of an argument about the Native people there. Okay. He wants the Americans to know that he's there to help other Americans and put them first. Okay, yeah. The American connection to uh, a place that was pretty close to the domestic you know, uh, American border. Okay, Jordan, what do you think? What you I mean, any? very much yeah. echoing off of Brody. The um, I think the sentiment of a very recent American Revolution and Civil War and this idea of freeing people from the oppressor like does kind of come into play. Um, but the that desire to help the Americans there. I know that was a, the, a big point of the document. Um, so one of the things that students, people who look at any American conflict always ask is how did the United States choose which oppressor to go after, which little country to protect? Because if you really were, you know, you wanted to be equitable about it, there are places all over the world at all moments of history where the United States could intervene, you know, with the same rationale. So um, Vietnam, certainly communism plays a big role. It's uh, the proximity to China, China's involvement in North Vietnam. This was in some ways, right, it was part of the the Cold War chessboard. And uh, Johnson, you know, we know was making a case that if the United States doesn't stand up to North Vietnam, which meant it wasn't going to stand up to China, bad things were going to happen in Southeast Asia. But what is at stake for McKinley in the Caribbean, uh, and then you know, ultimately the Philippines. I mean, what's what what kind of what kind of foreign policy is, is he operating under? Well, I think it's it's funny you say that you lead with that because wasn't there a 
Cuban insurrection 20 years before that America had nothing to do with it. Right. But now is the time that we need to step in and, and help the Q like, yeah, it's just the, the rationale behind doesn't add up there. Right. Uh, but it's again, like what does America have interest in protecting or what, what is at stake for Americans? And that's to, or the, you know, the bigger government. What, yeah. why are we, what do we have, what do we have to lose? Yeah. We, I mean, we have these like, foreign policy uh, frameworks, right? So in Vietnam, it was sort of containment and NSC 68, the idea that there was this existential uh, war, uh, you know, battle between communism, democracy, and capitalism. And the United States was, you know, choosing a side and was, it was going to fight this war one way or another. The Monroe Doctrine, though, is similar in the 19th century. So, Brody, why should people care about the Monroe Doctrine? Uh, it's meant to be America's answer to um, like European imperialism. Right. So it's kind of America telling the rest of Europe to stay out of <laughs> North and South America. Right. Um, while also attempting to be like, well, it's just for their own protection. America has no right. interest. We just don't want you guys to have any access to them because Europe tried and already failed, right. To be good stewards of yeah. other countries. Right now, this is something we've, we have talked about. The United States likes to try to operate as if it can beat history, right. That it's not going to be an imperial power. It's not going to fail in war. It's not going to make the wrong decisions and, you know, cost too many American lives and the American public are going to give up on a conflict. Uh, and yet, you know, as historians, you know, it happens again. And again, because you can't beat history. You can't step outside of time, you know. Um, all right. So before I leave you two, you have any concluding remarks on uh, how we look at declarations of war from, and I want to preface this, from a veteran's perspective? Does it matter when or how declarations of war are framed? I think it does depend on the audience that 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 specific speaker okay. is trying to speak to so it whenever you declare war your the majority of your warrior population is going to be younger yeah. men and you need to try to convince them why they need to go fight and die for you okay and i think that plays a really big role in kind of how you formulate your arguments because you need to make sure you, you can Spell it out to them. And does it sound pretty consistent every time? You yeah. think? Okay, Jordan. Yeah. As uh, as you were saying earlier, <laughs> I think the generation before yeah. looking back at it, you know, to echo Brody, like the who the speaker is is directly speaking to yeah. plays the biggest portion in that. Yeah. Because as a uh, veteran still serving now, looking at any sort of declaration of war, I I try to look between the lines okay. a little more and, yeah. and and more skeptical. What what's the true message? What is actually going on here um, versus just taking you know what Johnson or what anybody else has said at, at face value? Yeah, and and I think this is where the kind of conversation we get to have with you guys. You're you're not not green anymore, right? I mean, uh, you've been through the service to a point where you understand what maybe the implications are. Mm -hmm for the United States declaring any kind of involvement in a conflict. You know what that looks like. You know, you know what it entails for real people together in foreign countries 
doing things that they've been ordered to do one way or another, right? Yeah, the implications of that are pretty serious. All right. Thank you to you both. We'll get you on another podcast in this series. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Okay. So we're back with the second part of our episode on declarations of war. And we have a new guest, and I'd like him to introduce himself. Yeah. Hi, I'm Todd Shelton. Uh, currently, I'm a lecturer in the program of Media Arts and Science down to the Letty School of Informatics yeah. and Computing and Engineering and Computer Science. So right. I was in the Army, um, got medically discharged out of there. I was a, a 25 Bravo, which is an IT person, okay. when I originally went in and ended up coming out as an 18 Echo, which is a Special Forces Communications Sergeant. Okay. Yeah. Great time. All right. Yeah. So... The, the, the general gist of, of, this, of this episode is to think about when declarations of war are made. They often have a sort of format. Um, we think about them in terms both legal, meaning constitutional, that they're, if, we're, if the United States is going to go to war, there needs to be a declaration from Congress, mm-hmm. right? But the president usually makes the case. And we started off by listening to Lyndon Johnson's press conference in 19, July 1965, where he really does lay out why the United States needs to be in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You know, part of it was the domino theory. Part of it was the idea that communism had to be stopped in Southeast Asia to some extent, and South, and South Vietnam needed to be protected from the North and from China's influence. Uh, we also talked about William McKinley's very famous uh, declaration of war mm-hmm. that prompted the United States to get into the Spanish-American War. But I think what I'm interested now to hear from you is is a bit of reflection on the kind of, of uh, tone or categories that you think go into these sort of declarations of war, right? They, mm-hmm. they seem to be fairly consistent over time, right? Mm-hmm. There is an enemy. There is a sort of mission for the United States. There's a characterization of sort of what happens if the United States doesn't go into war, you know? Um but what do you hear? You know, what kind of things do you think uh, need to be there in order for you, with your experience as a vet, to um, accept a declaration of war? Yeah. I think going back, I mean, you've covered a lot, you know, Johnson's speech, and then you went back all the way to McKinley, McKinney, right? So talking about those, and then we come up to current days, yeah. and I think they're different in okay. all three generations right because the patriotism so let's go back to that you didn't have news and everything back in those days right so i think in today's society Mm -hmm. being a vet and especially you know since 9 11 you know and and most of us uh probably most of us in this podcast were post 9 11 right? right vets um you know, for me, we kind of made up our own mind. I mean, you hear that news before the declaration ever came out. Yeah. So in my mind. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of a different view probably in general for probably what you wanted. But for me, I heard all of that. Right. I mean, I'm already thinking, okay, let's, this news is coming from all over. And I watched it. And so yeah. I was already justifying myself of like. So that's really this. interesting. Yeah. yeah. And you, you know the story of Pat Tillman? Right, you played football for Arizona. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he became an Army Ranger. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was killed, a friendly fire uh, casualty, right, in in Afghanistan. But he had a very sort of similar response. He wasn't waiting for for the president or Congress to act. He he joined after 9-11. So that's an interesting, the idea that that generation, your generation, had made up their declaration before any formal 
yeah. uh, official had had done it. Yeah. yeah. So if you think about it, like um, I can tell you where I was yeah. the day I watched all those planes. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and yeah. for nine eleven, I mean, I was given blood at the time. You know, and yeah. I just they had a TV on. I'm like, wow. You know, so right then it was like. I'd already thought about going in, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, my whole life is like, ah, well, just kind of never did it. But that right there, That's it was interesting. like, mm, I'm going to take it on. So, yeah, I think yeah. today's modern soldier mm-hmm. can almost make up their own mind mm. before that declaration ever comes out. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, we hear so much and, yeah. and just think how much information, I mean, a podcast, how many podcasts are out there that we don't even know about? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm probably yep. talking way too much on this. No, 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 yeah. no, I, no, I think, <laughs> no, I think there's something to that, right? Because uh, certainly in the past, the idea of a leader like the president, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of singular leader in the United States making a statement about why the United States is going to send mostly men Mm -hmm. in to kill and die for the country means a lot. Yeah. Um, But that was, you know, Johnson's era. There were three network television stations. Yeah. That was it. Obviously a lot more newspapers and and radio. Um, McKinley's day, it was covered by the newspapers and it was framed in in various ways because the newspapers were um, controlled in in, in very unique ways by the publishers and things like that. But I think you're right. Um, the the era that we're in, this, this sort of new information age, seems to be hyper personalized, yeah. and uh, the way that um, that groups sort of rally around certain ideas or moments or events. Um, can you tell me a bit more about like after you thought that you're going to sign up? Mm-hmm. Did you talk to other guys who are also thinking in similar ways? I did, but. For me, again, I mean, I was a little older when I went in. Yeah. So <laughs> a lot of people my age were like, yeah. are you kidding me? Why are you going in when you're 30-something, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but the younger ones did, you know? I yeah. mean, and they, they were the same way. I yeah. mean, That's I think a lot of them, I bet if if you look at, like, just now, I mean, just different broadcasting stations, right? Um, certain ones, if you watch that one or you grew up on that one, right. your mindset is already right. to this way. Right. And if you talk to that person, you get a different. So um, at the time, I was working for General Motors. I was a production worker okay. you know, in there. Yep. And whole different mindset of individuals. And, yep. and you know, I remember, um, you know, there we had some younger individuals in there that – it was interesting to hear kind of their thoughts about yeah. it. You know, yeah. I mean, um, you know, there were, no, we don't need to go. Let's, yeah. you know, let's figure this out. Let's, you know, why, why are we going again? Yeah. Here we go. You know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. no, I mean, you just saw this. I mean, that was one of the first attacks yeah. in a, you know, since Pearl Harbor, right. That's yeah. ever happened on our soil. And right. to me, that probably ma- because that mattered. that mattered to me. Yeah. Cause I was probably older where I think a lot of younger don't feel that ownership of, of our place. country. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, for me, I mean, uh, again, I was a little older, you know, yeah. like right now I'm 53. Yeah. So it's like, I feel that patriotism a little bit, Yeah. you know? So I think, you know, I, I read a lot of um, accounts uh, about uh, Americans talking about war or um, soldiers. And I've read you know, a lot of novels, a lot of accounts from soldiers uh, about their experience in war one of the things that, that is a recurring theme is this contrast, and it's, it's often cast as very, very cynically, between the grandiose statement about why people go to fight and 
the experience of actually fighting and that the vets are often the best counterweight or counterpoint to the official declaration Mm -hmm. that for them, ultimately it's about saving each other's lives and Mm -hmm. and doing a job and then, and then getting the hell out basically, Mm -hmm. you know, um, how do you make sense of that? What (laughs) seems to be an endless, you know, conflict between the official understanding and what's really happening, what the real experience is. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, I think you just have to accept it and yeah. try to realize, in my mind, there, there was a lot of things that I didn't like. Okay, you know? yeah, um, right. Of course, you know, I, uh, you hear a lot of other vets are like, you know, it's I'm, I, my mindset has been totally turned around since when I wanted to go in and yeah. join. Yeah. And then now it's like, no, I don't, like, I would never have, you know, encouraged anybody to right. do that. It's interesting, I, yeah. For me personally, I I try to keep that fact of there's probably so much going on behind the scenes that I don't even know about. Right. And knowing some of the things that I do just from being in, you know, um, and there are a lot of things that you don't know about. Right. So there's people on a mission or doing something and they're like, why are we even doing this has nothing to do with that overall, you know, command to go to war yep, why are right. we doing this and there is a, probably a reason yeah that we just don't know about and in your but you're in there but unfortunately they don't know about it and so those people's mindsets you're turning them around right mm. so they're like well, this is, is i'm turned off by this yeah. you know so i think that's where the counter yeah comes in because yeah. they're seeing something that they didn't you know they thought they believed in and now they're doing something that they don't believe okay. in. Yeah. And is it tied together? Yeah. I mean, um, so you've read through a few of the, those declarations. Yeah. Did any of them connect with you better than others? Was <laughs> Were you like, yeah, I'm, I'm a McKinley man, but oh. Johnson's a little, I don't know. But, uh, or Henry Cabot Lodge, he made sense. Yeah. Um, it, it, did anything, did anything stand out to you like, uh, this seems so arcane or, you know, this, I, I don't know why people would follow this guy, but. You know, I, I just when I watched Johnson's, you know, this to me, I was like, "Wow, he doesn't, he's not very motivated." You know what I mean? Very mm. monotone, very, you know, yeah. like I did not feel energy. Okay, you know what I mean? I know he was trying to increase, like we're going to move this up from seventy to what he said we're going up fifty thousand more troops. Yep, you know, and it's like I don't feel motivated. I yeah. mean, he is not energy enough for me. Okay. Now yeah. I would have loved to have seen, you know, McKinney's like, yep. why are we going to war right. with Spain on right. this? Cause I could, I've read that and yeah. I can think, all right, if he has that powerful voice and he's doing this and that time, let's get it. Well, you know Theodore I mean? Roosevelt yeah. thought so. Yeah, yeah. He was ready to go. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was undersecretary of the Navy at the time. Right. like that goes down to Cuba. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it is, I think yeah. it's that person speaking. I mean, yeah. You, you know, you hate to bring this up, but I mean, a person, if they know how to speak yeah, and yeah. they know how to present themselves, I mean, Hitler talked a whole country into going to war yeah. for no reason and, and doing what he did, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they believed in that. Yeah. And that was because of a person knowing how to present themselves. Yeah. Right. I, you know, it's funny to think back to Johnson, what we know now about Johnson in yeah. 1965 and all the statements he, he gave about Vietnam, knowing that he was incredibly conflicted about whether or not this was actually going to work. Yeah. And even some of the policies that he's talking about are policies that he doesn't necessarily come up with. It's right. he's asked somebody to draft something 
and he's just going to say it. Yeah. 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 I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I, that's why I felt like in that speech, I don't feel like he it was yeah. in it, you yeah. know, it was not in his heart and you could literally see it. I yeah. felt like there was a few times he would look off to the side and I don't know if something was going on or he was just like, oh, I don't really believe in this, you know, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. I think that was a hard speech. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are a, a bunch of really interesting sort of, you know, semi-fictional films about Johnson and yeah. this era uh, in which the the point is pretty clear that um, his advisors are split. Uh, Johnson wishes that you know he could be involved in just about any other conflict right. other than this one. Yeah. You know? I know. I would have hated to be in in charge in power oh my during gosh. that time yeah. for that war. I mean, well, that's right. I mean, it's inter- you know it's interesting. Also, he sort of brings in. Uh, you know, presidents that he he sees in yeah. his own mind as being important sort of lodestars, right? I'm not any different than Jack Kennedy. Right. You know, I'm not any different than Dwight Eisenhower, the great commander, right. you know, that won World War II for right. you all, you know. They were in Vietnam, so I have to be in Vietnam too. <laughs> that was, di- yeah. <laughs> and there were so many other politics. And I think, you know, even during that broadcast, um, and I don't remember the name, but wasn't this almost like one of the first times they actually put a newspaper over a broadcast person like in charge who is that that they introduced during that interview um during the johnson interview mm-hmm. and said okay we're bringing somebody in that's been you know in the uh news yeah. press and yeah. everything for like 30 years we're going to put him in charge of bringing this news back and i think some of that to me is like okay why are they doing in why, my mind, why are they marketing yeah yeah why are well, they shaping the message and yeah. stuff yeah you know, because, right, right, I mean, do right. we now have to say, okay, we're going to put this person over here and now we can control what comes back, you know, of like we're going to energize the American people and know why we're right. there, you know? Yeah, I was, I was, um, I was telling somebody the other day that uh, in World War One, there were uh, a couple of times early on where the newsreels would show scenes from the war, from, mm-hmm. from you know, from the trenches. And the first couple of times they did that, people gasped. Because of course, at that time, no one had actually seen lot, you know, yeah. moving pictures of actual war, right? And then that was it. They never showed yeah. <laughs> film of a front again. Right. And and we have this this illusion that it happened in Vietnam. It didn't. You know, it, there was there was not film of guys dying in mm-hmm. Vietnam. There may have been a helicopter landing mm-hmm. or guys being taken out, mm-hmm. but it wasn't actual combat that right. was being filmed. You know, uh, it was just it was happening. For year after year after year, and so much was being written about so densely yeah. that the press became antagonistic. Right? Yeah. It was this relationship between the press trying to uncover what was happening in Vietnam and the the White House trying to control what's happening in Vietnam, yeah. and that conflict may, creates this idea that we don't know what's going on. Like yeah. the public doesn't know enough. Yeah, you know? and they can shape a lot. I mean, you you know and. Uh, one thing that I'm seeing right now, so I know we've we talked about the past in Vietnam, mm-hmm. but we start thinking about, you know, what's the declaration of war, right? Yep. So just think about the current the current things that are going on right now. I mean, you know, we watch Russian and Ukraine, yes, right, right. So and, and right now we're supplying a lot of a lot, a lot of uh, military yep. support to them, yep. and just hearing some of those, like why. Why is that? But I look at one other thing is like with China. Yeah. You know, uh, our relationship with China. And if you start thinking about some of the wording that's going on right now about just our conflicts with them. And now you watch them with Canada that just came out, you know, and you think, okay, what's this building up to? Is this really kind of 
building up to a declaration, what kind of news, yeah. you know, so. And I now, think, yeah, now you're thinking like a historian, yeah, a social yeah. critic. No, it's scary <laughs> yeah. because you see the patterns. Yeah. Yeah. And you hope because you can imagine with all the sort of statements that are swirling around mm-hmm. that a president could collect them in a certain way. Yeah. And the outcome is obvious, yeah. right? We yeah. have to go into some sort of war with right. the great enemy. And yeah. That, yeah. It's, it's kind of, yeah, it's, this is all interesting. Ever since we started all of this, and I've read a lot of these articles and yeah. stuff, it's really opened my eyes. But, I mean, I've always kind of thought these theories, just yeah. being in, I think it was a little older being in to help me out. But yeah. I've always been like, hmm, do I really want, you know, do I believe in that war? Yeah. You know what I mean? Why? Yeah. I just hope somewhere, you yeah. know what I mean? There's, there's a reason why we're doing this, yeah. you know? So, yeah. All right, Todd, thank you very much. This is very good stuff. Yeah, thank uh, you. We'll have you back for another episode. Uh, But thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Justice and War in American History. Please stay tuned for our next episode, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or through any of your favorite podcast providers. Please be sure to rate the podcast and to be in touch with us if you have any questions or feedback. You can find more information about this podcast and the broader Justice and War project at justiceandwarseminar.org. If you are a veteran or concerned about a veteran who is experiencing a mental health crisis, there is 24-hour support through the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Dial 988 and press 1 or text at 838-255. More information on support from the VA, visit mentalhealth.va.gov. And, as always, special thanks to the National Endowment for the Humanities for making this project possible. Thank you.